0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
2: Just how many lockdown parties would it take for Boris Johnson to resign? I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly.
3: Mr Speaker, I want to apologise.
2: Boris Johnson today apologised for attending a bring-your-own-booze party held in Downing Street in May 2020, at a time when the British public were only allowed to meet one other person outside.
3: Is he now going to do the decent thing
2: and resign? Despite calls for his resignation, the Prime Minister is hiding behind senior civil servant Sue Gray, who's investigating a string of dodgy gatherings in Downing Street but his own MPs had made clear to him they expected answers at today's Prime Minister's questions. So what did they make of it? And is Johnson's very future as Prime Minister now hanging in the balance? And to add to the government's problems, a cost-of-living crisis is heading our way, with 2022 being nicknamed the Year of the Squeeze. But where is the Chancellor as all of this unfolds? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. the scandals surrounding Downing Street simply won't go away, as an email leaked to ITV News this week revealed that Downing Street staff had been invited to a socially distanced party by Johnson's Principal Private Secretary Martin Reynolds during the first lockdown in 2020. I've just watched a highly anticipated Prime Minister's Questions and wanted to talk to Guardian columnist Gabby Hensliff about what she thinks of this mess. Gabby, it's lovely to have you. Um, what were you doing at about the time of this party-not-party party in May 2020? I, I imagine not wandering out into your garden and accidentally involving yourself in a drink stew.
4: I was doing basically nothing because nothing was basically what you were allowed to do. Although I do remember that on May 21st, it was a a really good friend of mine's birthday and she lives nearby. And we worked out that if we stuck kind of garden chairs on the opposite sides of the road outside my house, we could have a glass of wine within shouting distance of each other and be within the law. And I remember doing that in the sunshine, but even then thinking quite nervously, you know, is this okay? And what will people think? I've got elderly neighbours. I don't want them to think I'm not taking the rules seriously or, you know, that I'd put them at risk somehow. Little did I know, however. going on in number 10. So I can't imagine how people feel, to be honest, if they were holding funerals on Zoom that day or, you know, giving birth alone or seeing their grandparents through a window. So frankly, it's that sense that ordinary lives just were so miles apart from what was happening in number 10. That's a really damaging thing, I think, about this whole story.
2: And that was the really, before we get on to Boris Johnson's explanation of all this, that was the really strong sense you got yesterday. There was a session in Parliament where Labour asked asked an urgent question about this. Of course, Boris Johnson didn't Arrived to answer it, he sent the Paymaster General Michael Ellis, quite a junior minister. But you really felt from from lots of MPs that the sort of it was quite visceral. It was the emotion of it and the real anger, and it was based on both their own personal experiences and also their constituents' experiences of of you know what they were having to do.
4: And still so raw. I mean, Jim Shannon, the DUP MP, you know, he was in tears. He was talking about how his mother-in-law died alone because they couldn't be with her, you know, and lots of MPs telling similar stories, really traumatic stories. And you can, you can feel that the pain has stayed with people. You know, we're talking about something that dates back a year, 18 months, but people really, really have not forgotten the pain of being separated from their loved ones when they were going through difficult things. And Gabby, when I was talking to Conservative MPs yesterday from
2: different wings of the party, they they were saying they were very, very keen to hear what Boris Johnson, they were sort of withholding judgment until they saw what Boris Johnson had to say today. They felt that he couldn't continue to hide behind the Sue Gray inquiry, senior civil servant who's looking at a a whole load of these parties, of course. He couldn't continue to say, you know, gosh, I can't answer any of these questions. It's being investigated. Let's wait. They were very keen to hear him take some personal responsibility. He sort of did that, didn't he?
4: If anything, I have to say, I ended PMQs thinking he might have made it worse. I mean, his defence is essentially, I'm very, very sorry, but that he went to the party but didn't realise it was a party. With hindsight,
3: I should have sent everyone back inside. I should have found some other way to thank them. And I should have recognised that even if it could be said technically to fall within the guidance, there would be millions and millions of people... You simply would not see it that way. That
4: he turned up for 25 minutes in a garden packed with dozens of people boozing in the sunshine and went back to his office. Apparently, none the wiser that this wasn't, in fact, uh, a business meeting. And Keir Starmer described that excuse as so ridiculous as to be offensive. And I think he's probably right there. But there's a second deeper question. It's not just, you know, is that convincing to the listening public? Do they think, oh, yes, of course, that sounds perfectly reasonable explanation. But it's also, can he prove he didn't mislead Parliament back in December, when in response to reports of an earlier party, he insisted that no, rules were broken in number 10 during lockdown. The only way that can be true is if the party really was, you know, a gathering essential to the purposes of work. But his excuse isn't quite that. It's that he didn't realise it was an inessential gathering, even though many people will think it should have been bleeding obvious that that's exactly what it was. So I think the question of misleading Parliament remains live, even if you buy the excuse, and it's a pretty far-fetched excuse they didn't notice a party actually happening around him. Much as I love recording this podcast with you, Heather, I'm not under the impression it's a party. It's rare that I have been to a party and mistaken it for, in fact, a, a good day in the office. Most people can tell the difference. And if you can't tell the difference, that does say something quite interesting about your working environment. I would say.
2: Yeah, I'm sad to say I do not have a glass of wine in my hand, a rosé or, or otherwise, Gabby. <laughs>
4: maybe maybe a drink. Maybe, maybe that would <laughs>
2: <subscriptions, laughs> have a different question. <laughs> might improve things no end. But um, and and one the question for Conservative MPs now is are they willing to go out and defend this, isn't it? So when they get the call from their local paper or local broadcast or whatever, are they willing to go out there and say, well, you know, the prime minister's apologised and it was a perfectly reasonable mistake to make. That's his workplace. It's also his home. You know, yes, he did pop out for 25 minutes at, just after six o'clock. And, the, you know, yes, there were people standing around with glasses of wine, but he perfectly reasonable, reasonably thought it was a work event. I mean, it's quite a sticky wicket if you're a Tory MP, isn't it?
4: I think it's a very difficult story to repeat with a straight face for a lot of MPs. And that's why we've seen, you know, dearth of them on the airwaves over the last few days. They don't want as well, I think, to be held to a line that might change because there have been, let's just say, various accounts of various parties in number 10. And as an MP, you don't want to be held out to dry for defending something that later turns out to be indefensible or where the excuse later turns out to change. I mean, this was just on a personal level, this PMQs was pretty excruciating. He looked, embarrassed. He looked looked pale, he looked pretty done in. And when it gets to sort of things like, I mean, the Labour MP Toby Perkins raised the fact that the Prime Minister supposedly had to lie down in the back of his official car to avoid being photographed as he left Downing Street. I mean, that, that's just embarrassing for someone in number 10. It's not prime ministerial. This is end of day stuff. And I think you could see people really feeling that in the chamber.
2: Yeah, it's messaged me watching it to say, just saying, you know, he's a sort of Johnson ally, just saying he looks broken. You know, he really, he really looks broken. And G- Gabby, do you think, does this feel to you like, the beginning of an end. I mean one of the, one of the points is, I suppose, that it, it's not come out of the blue, this has come off the off the back of quite a long period now of, of weeks or months which sort of kicked off really with the Owen Patterson affair I suppose where MPs were sort of marched through the division lobbies to support this bid to overturn the punishment against Owen Patterson the disgraced former MP and then the next day you know Johnson dropped him like a stone when he realized that that wouldn't really wash there's a long period now where, where conservative MPs feel that they've been sort of dragged into the mire isn't there and it, it just got worse and worse progressively over over the weeks so I wonder whether you think this is the sort of the tipping point.
4: The other problem you 're right is that it 's you know, a constant barrage of stuff, and it won 't go away you know the minute the fuss from one party dies down there 's another party sort of pops up out of the the undergrowth, but also the sense I think that is getting in the way of the core. Job of government. If there's any good news to announce, like Michael Gove's announcements earlier this week about, you know, finding resolutions to the cladding problem, that's something that they would really have wanted to get across to voters in those seats where it's a big issue, you know, but it's all drowned out in party gate. This is making it impossible for the whole of government to do its job. Those who have been prepared to go along with it up to now have done so thinking that on balance, you know, he's still more of a, an asset than he is a liability and he, he did win some credit with a lot of Tory MPs for holding out against a, a lockdown over Christmas with the Omicron virus. Whatever, you know, listeners may have their own views on on whether that decision was right or wrong, but a lot of Tory MPs were very pleased by it. And you could feel him clawing back, you know, some credibility with them. And you saw the poll lead, Labour's poll lead narrowing again a bit. But then just as you think, oh, Possibly there's a way out of it for him. He's dragged back into it. It's that sense, I think, that they're never going to be free of answering these kind of embarrassing questions. And these kind of unforced errors, the sense you get from many MPs is this wasn't just wrong, it was dumb. You know, why did no one realise? It should have been blimmin' obvious that this was a stupid thing to do. Why does no one realise? And do you want to be harnessed to an operation that makes those kind of mistakes forevermore?
2: And also, if 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 you're a, a voter, it sort of plays into a lot of things that we already knew about Boris Johnson. You might have quite liked him because he's a bit of a rule breaker, and you know he's somebody who who doesn't do what the establishment do you know he was he was willing to kind of stand up against this all these sort of people in Westminster over Brexit and so on but it it means you've already got this idea in your head that he's someone who maybe you know doesn't play by the rules he's not sort of standard politician bit of a maverick and then this thing happens that that plays into that sort of sense you already have of of the kind of politician that that he is and and that that makes it quite likely to stick doesn't it
4: yes I think so and also people like rule breakers when they are breaking the same kind of rules that you could imagine yourself breaking. You don't like rule breakers when what they're doing is deciding that the rules that apply to other people don't apply to them. And that's the difference. It's the contrast between the sacrifices that other people were making and the sacrifices that clearly government couldn't be bothered making. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And Gabby, if we should talk through, shouldn't
2: we, what would happen if Conservative MPs did collectively or, or or sort of, you know, one by one, as it were, come to the decision that they can no longer support Boris Johnson as leader, that they can put letters in, can't they, to the, the chair of the 1922 committee, Graham Brady, which if the threshold of 54 is reached, triggers a vote of no confidence. And if Boris Johnson were to lose that vote of no
4: confidence, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, then we have a leadership contest. So it's always, <laughs> someone always said, it's it's easy to get the first few letters, it's getting the 52nd that's hardest. <laughs> it's, it's knowing that you'll be the MP that tips it over the edge. And it tends to come with previous leaders, when it comes, it comes in a flurry, it comes all at once. It's that you suddenly reach a point where the critical mass of the party is like, nah, we can't go on with this. And at that point, the floodgates open. And I think that rarely happens until two sort of thresholds have met. One, that the parties decided it is worse carrying on like this than than anything that could happen afterwards. You know, the disruption, the sort of public backlash, the, the sort of chaos that would follow... Is, is better than what we've got at the moment. And secondly, they have to be convinced that there's someone out there who's who's worth making the switch for and that this is the right time for them to take over, which I think is critical. There would be an argument right now, I suspect uh, some candidates will quite possibly be making it, that better to let Boris Johnson soak up the remaining pain of you know, this latest COVID outbreak and maybe take the hit for the tax rises and cost of living increases that are following the spring and then allow a new leader to come in.
2: Mm, and, and take the flat for what what's likely to be a, a not a great set of local elections in, in May as well. Gabby, Keir Starmer, did you think he did a good job today? He sometimes gets criticised, doesn't he, for being, well, he gets praised for being forensic. He also gets criticised for being forensic because, you know, that that's sometimes a synonym for a bit dull. But you probably want someone forensic on an occasion like this, don't you?
4: If a lawyer can't do uh, PMQs like this, then it's hard to see who can. I mean, he was there. That was the first thing. And he wasn't off with Covid. <laughs> that was a bonus. But I think he pitched it right. He was contemptuous, I think.
3: Is the Prime Minister really so contemptuous of the British public yeah. that he thinks he can just ride this out?
4: Yeah. He was scornful. He was disgusted rather than angry. And I think that's picking up a sense of whether the public is and he didn't make it about politics he made it about the human stories that we've been talking about you know a woman who's who has been all over the news for the last few days talking about how her father was dying by the time that sort of all this partying was going on and she she sat down with boris johnson in the garden where the party you know would take place and he swore that he'd done everything he could to keep her father safe and how she feels now about knowing that you know the same lawn is being used for drinks stews.
3: what hannah wants to know is this Does the Prime Minister understand why it makes her feel sick to think about the way that he's behaved?
4: It's that sense of bringing together, harnessing that public mood we've been talking about. That's what he does well. But in the end, it's over to Tory MPs now. I mean, there's only so far that Labour can go into goading them to act. And there's also a danger that the more Labour's saying resign, 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 the harder it is for Tory MPs to sort of push that in a sense they don't want to be seen as being pushed into it by the opposition.
2: Yes, that's the last thing you want, isn't it? Is to do what do do? seem to be sort of doing Keir Starmer's bidding, as it were. Um, we should talk about the Sue Gray inquiry, Gabby. So this has been the sort of shield behind which uh, the government have been hiding in recent days. Wait for Sue Gray. Wait for Sue Gray. What can and can't she find? She's a senior civil servant, isn't she? And effectively, Boris Johnson is her boss. So is she really going to issue some sort of damning report, you know, that says Boris Johnson guilty? She's not going to do that, is she?
4: It's a very difficult position for her to be in, I think. I mean, she's used to investigating cabinet ministers, you know, who arguably are the boss of civil servants. And Sue Gray is quite a fearless individual. I think it's fair to say both Labour and Tory administrations that have worked under her um, sort of quake at the knowledge of Sue Gray's being on the warpath. But she's in a very difficult position. And that, I think, is why there's been so much pressure on the Metropolitan Police to intervene or to investigate or to get involved. Because there's a sense that you need someone who is, you know, outside the government system to to investigate at this point. But everything rests on whether she produces a conclusion that gives him a bit of wiggle room, or whether she produces something so damning that he has to go. And I think, in that light it was fascinating that he didn't answer Keir Starmer said to him, Will you resign? And he didn't answer that question with a straight no. And
2: it's interesting too to hear Starmer calling for his resignation, wasn't it? Which he's you know, he's been seen as quite cautious, Starmer and being careful about not going around calling for heads all over the place. But he did make very clear that, you know, he thought he thought it was time for the Prime Minister to go, which was interesting, I thought.
4: Yeah, I mean, you couldn't not at this stage, I think. But the, the leaders' office have taken very much taken the view that if you call for everyone to resign, you just sort of cheapen it as a as a tool, and you look silly when they don't. You know, you just look powerless. But in this case, I, I really don't see how they could not have brought brought that question up. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, if, if if not now, then when I suppose. Um, G- Gabby, just before we go, I, I I just wonder how long. I mean, it's incredibly difficult to judge, as you say, and it depends how MPs respond both today and and next week when we see the the grey report. If indeed it is next week, we're certainly not expecting it this week.
4: But but you know, how long do you think that Boris Johnson has got? He looked to me today like someone realising that they're not going to make it till 2024. And I don't know, you know, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. He's seen this process happening. You know, he was part of it when it happened to Theresa May, which was striking today thinking back. It's over a decade since a Prime Minister has actually been defeated the old-fashioned way no, and you, you do. I saw
2: somebody suggesting Theresa May had left the chamber with a spring in her step today. But, you know, it's kind of fascinating that Boris Johnson was instrumental, really, in that, in that effort to sort of get Theresa May toppled. And here he is, only a couple of years after winning that extraordinary election victory. And, and the same game is, is playing out. It's extraordinary, really. What goes around comes around, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Gabby Hinsliff, thanks ever so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. After the break... Partygate may be the story of the day, but the government also has an impending cost of living crisis to worry about. So how might ministers stop a catastrophe hitting Britain's households? We'll be right back.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian. Although Boris Johnson may currently be in the limelight, Rishi Sunak may soon be facing the heat as 2022 is expected to bring a cost-of-living crisis that could potentially see a record number of households falling into fuel poverty. The Guardian's political correspondent, Peter Walker, spoke to our economics editor, Larry Elliott, and the chief executive at the New Economics Foundation, Miata Fambula, to explain what we can expect.
1: So, Miata and Larry, welcome. Thank you very, very much. The UK is starting the year with a series of of cost-of-living-related crises, not least the uh, energy crisis. Um, Energy bills could rise by 50%. And experts are saying this could lead to an enormous amount of trouble. Larry, how exactly did we get into this position?
3: Well, it's two things, really. We don't produce enough renewable energy um, and we're very heavily reliant on importing gas um, and the global price of gas has gone up. And we are going to feel that in our gas bills eventually. At the moment, people are being protected by a price cap, but that is going to be reassessed in February with the new bills coming into force in April. And on average, a household that's currently paying something like £1,277 a year is going to be paying £1,865 a year. So that's a very, very chunky increase coming down the road in April.
1: And the government has said there's going to be some kind of targeted uh, help for people. There's a £500 million household support fund and various other measures like that. Is it going to be enough?
3: It's not going to be nearly enough. I mean, the the £500 million that they're talking about was the replacement for the universal credit uplift, which was in place during the first part of the pandemic. So they've taken away something like £6 billion worth of support and replaced it with £500 million worth of support. And that was before the price increase of gas came down uh, the road. So people were already struggling anyway, and now they're facing these new bills on top so the government has already has, has made some tweaks i mean it's made some tweaks to the universal credit taper which is the amount of money people can earn before their benefits start to be taken away from them but these are really small uh, changes and they're not going to be nearly enough if a is going to be asked to pay 600 pounds a year more on their on their energy bills and it's going to plunge a lot more people into fuel poverty there's absolutely no question about it
1: and one of the issues on this, which has particularly exercised some Tory MPs, and Labour are also keen on this, is the idea of removing VAT from uh, energy bills. Um, but critics say it wouldn't be particularly targeted and wouldn't actually do that much good. Would that be a good policy? Do you think?
3: Well, I think it's one option that the government could pursue. I mean, it's not; it wouldn't make that much of a difference. Uh, so, removing VAT on bills would probably save people about eighty or ninety pounds a year. So the government's probably going to need to do more than that. I don't I don't think the Treasury is that keen on the idea, even if it was just a one year temporary suspension of VAT. I just think it thinks it's a bit of a blunt instrument. But to be honest, it's not a bad policy. If everybody in the country is facing very big increases in their bills. I mean, you know, the fact it's not very well targeted, may not make that much difference to the government at the end of the day.
1: It's not only households that are affected by the steep increase in prices. Myata, um, what's the overall societal impact of higher uh, energy bills? It goes a lot um, further than this, doesn't it?
5: It does, because um, it's going to have an, a huge impact on the economy in the round. It's going to have an impact on businesses who will also be um, experiencing high energy bills, bills, which means increases to their cost base. Um, and the end result will be a knock-on effect on... Economic performance over the course of the next quarter. But I think that the real pinch will be felt by households. This comes at absolutely the worst time for people's finances and people looking to you know, manage already tight budgets. So, yes, it will have a big effect on the economy around, but it's households and poor households in particular that can be absolutely hammered by this.
1: And in terms of how we got to this point, I mean, you know, we've got inflation which is heading towards 6%. Uh, We've got uh, energy bills going up a lot. We've got all sorts of other things. We've got the kind of wage freeze and things like that. Some government ministers, you know, when he points to this will say, oh, it's just a COVID related thing. But it does sound like there's much, much longer structural issues here. You know, how exactly did we
5: get to this? The big thing to say is inflation is now a problem, but the thing that's driving inflation is the supply side. It's not the fact that the economy is overheating, that people, there's lots of investment, there's lots of uh, spending the economy. It's the fact that we've got a supply problem. Um, and part of that is to do with COVID. I mean, COVID and all the restrictions and disruptions have massively thrown a spanner in the supply chain. And we're seeing part of that. We have a long history of underinvesting in things that would help the supply of things within the economy in the round. And I think that's also coming to bite us. So the longer structural issues around investment in certain things that we've underinvested means that this is probably a problem that's going to be here for at least the medium term.
1: And is there anything that can actually be done in the short term in terms of this kind of wider issue? And, you know, do you get any sense that ministers are starting to get a sense of urgency about this?
5: I think the urgency is just starting to kick in. I think if they had grasped what was coming down the track this year, that budget that we saw, uh, you know, last autumn would have been very different. Um, For the one hand, the government wouldn't have removed some of the income protections that were in place, they would have bolstered it or increased it. I can't Emphasize enough how short-sighted and poor in economic terms the decision to cut the universal credit 20 pound upflip was. And actually, this is the time that the government should be thinking about how we bolster the minimum level of income that people have in a world where, you know, we, we're in a position where the poorest households are going to be pushed into poverty. But actually, we've got about a third of people in this country who are struggling to make end meet. So you bolster income, but then there are things that you do that could be targeted at the price of energy. How do you potentially not increase the price cap for all households? Could you, for example, keep it at a lower level um, for uh, some of the lowest-earning households, and then you split the bill between the market um, and the government?
1: To go back to the specific uh, energy price crunch, Labour have got this alternative plan, a kind of a windfall tax idea, which would um, make North Sea oil and gas producers pay extra tax. Larry, is this a kind of credible
3: plan? Could it do any good? It's certainly uh, an ambitious package and it would end up really preventing the poorest families and the sort of struggling middle income families from being really caned by these energy increases. The argument against windfall taxes, that it discourages companies from investing. But I think if it's in in these very, very particular circumstances, it probably would work. And it probably is the least bad of all the options. I think politically, it's kind of interesting that Labour has got on the front foot on this issue. And it's filling a vacuum that the government has, has left and the government has only itself to blame. And it still seems to be havering around trying to come up with the, uh, a solution to this. Uh, and, it, and it's failing to do so.
1: And in terms of who's to blame on the government side for not being proactive uh, enough on this, I mean, the Treasury have been reasonably quiet. The Chancellor, Rishi, uh, Rishi Sunak, was briefing Conservative MPs this week, and he's been trying to talk them around. But no one seems to know what their plan is. Sunak has obviously been seen recently as one of the favourites to take over from Boris Johnson, should Johnson fall under the metaphorical number three bus. And obviously, all the revelations about parties make this perhaps even more likely. Do you think Sunak's well honed brand has been damaged at all by this? And do you think, Larry, maybe it could be even more damaged once the cost of living crisis kind of rolls on?
3: I think we've had peak Sunak. I think that, <laughs> you know, uh, the shares in Sunak were at their highest during the early stages of the pandemic when he was handing out lots of free money through the through the furlough scheme and through you know all the other schemes that the government came up with in order to mitigate the impact of the of covid he's going to face a much much tougher 2022 than he did 2020 or 2021 uh, and part of that is that he's, he has been a bit absent really i mean you know he he he's one of these chancellors who doesn't really like to be around when there's when there's bad news traditionally governments don't do that well when living standards are falling and they are going to be falling this year. I mean, you know, if you if you look back historically, very, very few chances of the Exchequer go on to be prime minister and Sunak could well join that long list of prime ministers that we never had, I think.
1: And then I guess a final question to the both of you. If 2020 and 2021 were very much kind of COVID years in terms of politics and news and also just the way it affected people's lives, is it possible that if... Omicron does turn out to be relatively mild and people can start to live more normal lives. I mean, will this year be the year of the cost of living
5: crisis? Yeah, 100%. And I think it goes back to the fact that people are already struggling. Uh, we, we've had well over uh, a decade in which you know the squeeze has been there and the thing that households are about to endure. And it won't just be the lowest income households. It, it will be up the income scale. I think it's going to be absolutely horrendous.
3: Warren Buffett, the veteran US investor once said, when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. And that's absolutely right about 2022. It's going to be the year when the tide goes out from the pandemic. And all those long-standing issues are going to come bursting back into the into the centre of the political debate. And that's not good news for the government, I don't think.
1: Well, it's going to be interesting and potentially a challenging year. Thank you very, very much, both of you.
5: Thank you.
3: Bye-bye.
1: That was
2: Peter Walker there speaking to Larry Elliott and Miata Fambula. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Thursday's episode of Today in Focus as Jonathan Friedan looks at the future for Boris Johnson. And in Politics Weekly Extra on Friday, Jonathan speaks to former advisor to the CIA Barbara Walter about why the risk of civil war in America has never been higher. But for now, I want to thank our guests Peter Walker, Miata Fambula, Larry Elliott and Gabby Hinsliff. The producer is Amelia Janssen I'm Heather Stewart. Thanks, as always, for listening.
0: This is The Guardian.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?